The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to the Cutting Room, AOTG.com's official podcast, and this week we're going to be interviewing Doug Hansel. Now, you've probably noticed that we've been a little slow at getting these podcasts up, and that's just because we've been swamped getting all these articles and content on the website. And we've also launched a new discussion tool. If you go to AOTG.com discuss, you can actually start various conversations about post-production, or you can join a conversation about post-production. And with that, we're also doing a lot of live discussions online. So we had Misha Tenenbaum come on and discuss getting your start in the post industry. And we're actually going to get some editors on, as well as some post-professionals in the VFX and sound area, to discuss their work and allow anyone to ask any questions directly to the editor. So you can check that out at aotg.com discuss. Now with Doug, we sit down and we discuss Avid, because Doug was a former senior product designer for Avid, and we get a very unique insight into how Avid worked. And I say worked because Doug was there from before DigiDesign was bought to just a few years ago. And so he gives us this really interesting perspective into how Avid works. The other thing I want to give you a heads up about before we get into this episode is that at the end I ask the common question that I always ask the editors that I interview and that is what is your favorite guilty pleasure film? Doug gives us his favorite guilty pleasure film and then he realized afterwards that his favorite guilty pleasure film is actually Cinema Paradiso. So he's going to talk about a few other films but the one that he really wanted us to know about was Cinema Paradiso. Okay so with that in mind enjoy my interview with Doug Hansel. You worked at Avid as a uh, senior product designer. Can you tell us about that job and how did you get into that job? Sure. So, um, believe it or not, I was hired by Avid in the UK office um, almost 22 years ago, or actually more than 22 years ago, um, when I was working in South Africa. And I was actually hired on the audio side of, of things. So that's kind of where I cut my teeth was in the recording studio and stuff. So mm-hmm. it was actually a slow progression to go from um, those beginning days 22 years ago where I was working on a product called AudioVision, which some people still remember. It's before things like Pro Tools existed um, that, that, that Avid made. And um, over the course of those years, uh, you know, I kind of morphed as the technology morphed into more and more video stuff. So my, my true experience in the industry actually came from the audio side. So, yeah, it was an interesting, slow progression into kind of the express side of things. I, I would never, you know, call myself an online editor or anything like that, but um, was certainly, um, you know, learned a lot along the way, kind of going from audio into video and stuff. And, of course, there's a lot of parallels in there that are really interesting, too. So at one point, I became the you know, senior product designer for um, Express, and that was back in the good old days when the gloves were off between us and, and FCP and stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, the, the best thing about the job, I guess, 
for me, uh, it was the ability to talk to all the customers and be the bridge or the conduit between customers and the engineering department because the, the folks were very passionate there about getting it right. And, uh, and you know, obviously the customers are very passionate about what they need and stuff. And it was, a great, it was great to be a bridge between those two worlds. So what exactly would the product designer do? So you're going out and meeting with the client and, or I guess the users and, and figuring out what they want? Yeah, exactly. So we would, we would uh, basically go around and, and talk to people and observe their, their workflows as it were, and see what they did. And, and we'd, we'd take different uh, attacks at the, the problem. So one of the hardest things to do uh, as a as a kind of a product designer, you know, we might go in and, and sit down in a facility in, say, New York or L.A. and say, okay, so tell us what comes in that door, mm-hmm. what you do to it, and where it goes and what, what you need to, you know, basically do to kick it out the other side and, and and then try to get people to go way, way high up in their workflows because a lot of people are so entrenched in what they're doing mm-hmm. and they're so used to the workflows and the workarounds that they do every day to get the job done, they don't even think necessarily about how it might be different. So our one of the jobs uh, for us was to actually try to get people to do the classic think outside the box. In other words, mm-hmm. you know, get it way up and like what are we really trying to accomplish here and then see if we're actually doing it in the best way possible and what kind of things could help. Because otherwise, people will just give you a laundry list of bugs, and if I click on this button, it turns pink, or what, you know <laughs> what I mean? So that was the fun part about it, is to yeah. try to really do you know, those kind of, uh, you know, kinds of research, if you will. Well, how do you pull that out? Like, how do you get that out of someone if it's so entrenched? Well, that's the trick, isn't it? The trick is to really not let them sit in front of the machine, get them away from the media composer, um, have them look in a different direction and talk more about what it is they do and what they're responsible for and what slows them down and what mm-hmm. caused them to not get home and see their kids last night or whatever. You know, those, so you try to, it's all about teasing them away from just the machine because otherwise they'll just talk about the machine and the buttons and, and yeah. stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's not easy and it doesn't always work, but, um, but when you do that, then you start to really get some true insight into how to make things better for people. And that's a lot of fun. And then what you do after that, of course, is you write, write it all down in a document called a typically a, a requirements document, a product requirements document that you then deliver to engineering and say, here you go, guys, this is the issues we need to solve. And then we all brainstorm together about how we might do that. How do you approach the the engineers then? Is it... Because do you, do you need to know any coding at all just to sort of help communicate, or is it just straightforward discussions? I think the more that you know about their challenges, the better off you are. And the fact that I had an uh, electrical engineering degree, I'm sure, helped me mm-hmm. in, on some levels. But no, I'm I'm not a computer programmer by any stretch, not at least mm-hmm. any kind of program programming language that's in use today. Um, but um, but yeah, it, it's more an appreciation for the time it takes to actually develop the ideas and actually get them out the door. Uh, that's something that's, I guess, most people suffer with is like, how come it takes so long? You know, and that's something that that yeah. Avid really struggled with with their their uh, community of users is how come it takes you guys so long to do the stuff we ask you to do or never do the stuff we ask you to do. And I guess now that I'm not in the company, I can talk about those challenges a little bit because 
at the end of the day, you know, you only have so many resources. I hate to call people that, but you only have so many people that can do certain types of, of work and you have to mm-hmm. prioritize. And so one of the things we used to call it was ruthless prioritization. That was the ability to sit down and say, okay, we have all this stuff that people want us to, to do to help them. Now, what is it that we have to do first and foremost to, number one, keep the lights on at Avid, right? Um, and, and, and number two, satisfy the most burning uh, needs of, of the industry. And, and that's a really hard thing to do because you're never going to please everybody. You have to pick and choose, you know, where things are going at the time. Uh, technology-wise, and what you've got to choose from, and it's, you know, it's it's very frustrating for everybody because you're always making trade-offs. Well, you you sort of mentioned that it's hard to please everyone, and with Final Cut coming in, there was sort of this, I guess, separation between the older guard of editors who were working since the you know, the 80s and 90s and had been grown up on Avid, and these younger editors who could afford Final Cut and they were, you know, using Final Cut. So how did you balance that relationship between trying to get the younger editors to get used to Avid and still keeping your older editors uh, happy that their software hasn't changed drastically? With great, great difficulty. (laughs) Um, And it's a problem that, you know, not a lot of companies have to deal with, I guess, because we had, as you said, such entrenched users from what you can call the old guard, the Hollywood uh, folks mm-hmm. who have been doing it for years. And as far as they're concerned, a lot of them, they don't need it to do anything different. Uh, there's a lot of people that says, mm-hmm. please do not touch this. It works just like I want it. I'm super fast. Don't change anything. You know, they're begging us. <laughs> Why do you feel the need to change things? And, you know, it, I understand mm-hmm. that from their standpoint, uh, it's perfect, and, and and maybe we don't need to do anything but address a couple little bugs here and there. But they have to understand, you know, that in the time we're talking, we're also trying to sell to to new up and coming editors. And you know, if anything, the Avid uh, user interface for everybody who who knows it, loves it, or hates it, um, is very old school. And you know, for those the old guard who has put in many thousands and thousands of hours learning it. Sure, it, it works mm-hmm. great, and they're very fast at it. But you know, if you take a look at some uh, somebody new out of school and you put them in front of, say, FCP, Premiere, and Avid, we all know what they're going to be able to edit on first, and it's not the Avid, mm-hmm. right? And so trying to bridge that gap was incredibly difficult. So one of the ways that we went about it was, okay, we're not going to take anything away from the old guard, but we're going to add to. So we're going to add things that the mouse can do. Because obviously the, the newer breed of editors are very mouse-centric, whereas the old guard was much more keyboard-centric. And so you could yeah. add right clicks. You could add more contextual stuff. You could do drag-and-drop things. You could do all that stuff without necessarily breaking any of the old guard's tried-and-true methods. So these were, this, this is the stuff that we had to tread carefully on. One of the biggest things that, that caught um, Avid was when they tried to do this thing called the Smart Tool, which was kind of what you saw in, in FCP, at least back in, in the seven and earlier days, and, and Premiere, where you had a tool set where you could click on things and it, you know with the mouse and it would do certain operations. And it's, it's more intuitive. It, it follows a modern kind of computer paradigm of how things should work. You should be able to click on things and grab them and manipulate them and stuff. And in the Avid, that wasn't always the case. You you couldn't just click on stuff. You 
would you know mm-hmm. it just wouldn't grab stuff. So that's how we did that. And boy, did the old guard just freaked out. I mean, they were just really upset, if you might remember all those conversations. And but it, there was no turning back, and we, we had to do that in order to have a shot at all of bringing, say, people who had learned um, Final Cut or had learned Premiere over to Avid at the time. So it was, yeah, it was tough. Now, you said you came over from sound originally. So what did you, uh, like, did you move uh, in from Pro Tools, or you went from a software that you had mentioned earlier to Pro Tools and then Avid? Yeah, so Audio Vision was Avid's audio editing application built on the same engine uh, that the Media Composer was. And once um, Avid bought DigiDesign back in the day, uh, there was uh, yeah, kind of a classic, not enough talent room in this town for the both of us. You know? uh, so even though DigiDesign said they were going to keep the, um, the Audio Vision product around, and it was really revered and still is by people who ever used it because it was a perfect integration of picture and mm-hmm. sound. So it was perfect for post, as you might imagine, if it was running on an Avid type engine. Um, but they yeah. they killed it, uh, and it was you know it, it was yeah <laughs> it was a pretty upsetting thing. But you know it's it's just business. It's the way things happen, and obviously we all know how great Pro Tools is yeah. in, a, in its own right. So um, so I actually. During that that time when that happened, and that was kind of my product, that's when I got asked if I wanted to uh, kind of move into the video space because I thought I was going to be gone. I thought I was going to leave because Pro Tools and DigiDesign Mm -hmm. had a whole different way of selling the product. It wasn't direct like it was back in those days. It was all kind of boxes being shipped out the door by resellers and stuff like that. So. So anyway, that's when I kind of that was the time of when I started to cut over to video on the low end and, and do the kind of express, um, you know, media composer for babies type type stuff, um, and and it worked really well for me because it allowed me to cut my teeth on the video side and kind of grow into that whole thing from there, and then because I've you know once you're you're in love with sound you're you're always going to be a sound person I, I was able to do a lot of work, um, uh, doing the kind of interoperability stuff between media composer and pro tools because i you know i obviously fell in love with pro tools too so i'm mm-hmm. sitting in front of one right now and so that that was something really important to me was to be able to make that bridge between pro tools and any um non-linear editor really uh, as mm-hmm. good as possible so that, that was another fun part of the job for me was being kind of in charge of some of that stuff so when you came over for express how do you tackle that did you take um you know code from the Avid Media Composer and bring it in, or did you start from scratch? No, it was very much, um, here's Media Composer, and we now want to have a software-only version of Media Composer, if you will, and we want it stripped down so that we can charge less for it and still keep the premium at the Media Composer side. Now, this is back when Media Composers commanded like a $50,000 price tag, and you know it was one of the only games in town. I mean, I guess Lightworks was its biggest um, competition back then or whatever, and, and you know, sales guys had it easy they just had to pick up the phone and say how many do you want um so so back then they were looking for a way to go down market and you know it it wasn't driven by fcp at the time they just knew they needed to do that Mm -hmm. just from a good business standpoint and and it was really about stripping out features that they didn't feel that say corporate and wedding videographers and, and and stuff and folks like that didn't need you know it was what can we do without do we need to have dual rolling trim do we need to um, you know can we can we simplify things you know and it was it was about what can we do um, and that's kind of what frustrated people with 
express was the fact that it was stripped down and and it slowly over time grew back features that were really important that and that were uniquely avid, especially like trimming and things like that. And it was also, of course, that was when DV hit the the, the mark. So it was mm-hmm. it was originally called Express DV. Right. And you may remember that there were Express hardware products, which were also an, uh, an offshoot of Media Composer, but still had the hardware like the Meridian cards or the uh, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. Um, and then, but the, the, the software only thing was where I was kind of um, focused. I was all about trying to, um, to do software only. And that, that was truly the Express DV product, which later became Express Pro and things like that. So when when Final Cut came in, what was the environment like? What was it like working at Avid uh, at that time? Well, that that was um, that was really it. We'd never experienced any kind of real competition. The the company just didn't know what competition was until that happened, and and to say it was disruptive is, is an understatement. It was a big deal, especially if 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 anybody remembers that ad that came out that said something around the lines of the fifty thousand dollar editing system now nine hundred ninety nine percent off or something. Yeah. You know, it was just yeah. so bold and big, and, and in the face of Abbott, it was like, oh my god, the gauntlet has been thrown. And they're good at throwing gauntlets, that company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as the person doing the low end. Um, product, the, the Express product, which was the natural arch enemy of, of FCP. So I got thrown into that whole thing full force. And of course, I had to learn FCP. I had to do competitive analysis with that. Um, Premiere really wasn't a player at that point. Um, you know, it existed, but um, nobody really mm-hmm. took it seriously because it just didn't work that well yet. But uh, so it was all FCP and it was ugly. Yeah. And um, as this whole thing came to a head around in the 2002 time frame, I think it was, I was in charge of putting together like shootouts and, you know, between mm-hmm. um, Avid and, and Apple. And, and so I would be up on stages, you know, doing a comparison. So one particular um, DV expo, I think it was in New York city uh, found me uh, getting, I'm, I'm getting ready to go to that. And, and um, mm-hmm. I'm getting all my ducks in a row for what I'm going to say to the, the audience. And I'm literally going to do a shootout between FCP mm-hmm. and I think it was a, maybe XDV3, you know, version 3 or 3.5 or something. Maybe, yeah, anyway, long time ago. Um, and so the, the war at that time is all about real-time effects. You know, you're in software. How, how many streams can you do? What can you see before you have to render, you know? And so yeah. I had a Mac laptop and... I was trying to do what Apple was telling me um, I should be able to do with real time. They were advertising a certain amount of performance, and I couldn't get my um, system to do that. And mm-hmm. meanwhile, my Avid Express system was just going nuts. It was able to do lots of real time, and you know this was something I was going to make a big deal about. Anyway, so while I'm doing my research, I'm online as we do, and uh, looking around and finding out, so how come I can't get the real time that Apple claims? And so I start looking around and I find out that, oh, the community of FCP folks have found out about this thing called the real time hack or the RT hack. And they figured out that there are scripts that are inside the, the software uh, on the FCP side that actually limit its ability to do real time based on the speed of the processor. So, you know, Apple will say, well, yeah, of course we did that because we wanted to guarantee a certain level of performance and all that kind of stuff. But me being the competitive guy at Avid, I I saw an opportunity. So I said, okay, I'm going to tell everybody that 
you know, they're marketing and saying, this laptop that I have is supposed to be able to do this, and it can't unless I hack these scripts, which is what everybody's doing. So mm-hmm. I basically went up in front of everybody. I don't know how many hundreds of people were there and did this on a big projector. And I said, I couldn't get this real time. Here's what I had to do. I had to hack the script and take it away so I could get the real time that they're claiming. Uh, and, I, and it's still not as, as good as Express TV. You know, the crowd goes wild. Yeah. Anyway, so the product manager for, uh, for FCP back then met yeah. me afterwards and was so livid at what I had done because I was kind of making the case that they're they're purposely throttling the software based on how much money you paid to buy their hardware, right? Which they were very sensitive about. Yeah. Anyway, he was so livid, he wanted to, he was about to punch me. There was people surrounding us. He really looked like he was going to hit me. He, his fists were shaking. Yeah. Um, all that came back to when we all got back to our respective offices, David Crawl, the CEO of Avid, gets a call from Steve Jobs where Steve Jobs yeah. says, you need to fire that Doug Hansel guy. He has no right to show hacks to my software. That's illegal. You're going to hear from our lawyers, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> it got really intense, and, and luckily David slapped me on the back after telling me that and said, don't worry, Doug, I'm not going to fire you. Not today anyway. <laughs> um, but it was it was really intense, and it was hard for the, for the company, uh, obviously, and, and mm-hmm. we all know what happened. But what's so interesting to, to look back now and look at – you know, what happened with FCP 10 or X, depending on how you want to call it, and the fact that they go and, uh, let's call it disruptively innovate yeah. to the point where it's actually disruptive, and, you know, now they're still crawling back up through the muck to get, mm-hmm. you know, and, I, and it, I, I try to use FCP 10 frequently. I still I find that I can't think its way a lot, but, um, you know, I'm I'm giving it. And now that I'm out of the company and I, I use Premiere, I use whatever tool I, I need to use. But uh, but it's fascinating to look at the turn of events, you know. It's just really interesting. It's a fascinating industry that we, we are in. With that in mind, like, I mean, they did that big rewrite to Final Cut X. Uh, but Avid was working hard to change things um, to meet the demand and the, the requests, especially after Ten came out. Uh, there was a big push. So when the company's going in one direction, how do you, you know, it's such a big company. So how does the company work to change direction and make sure that they're on point for all the editors? Right. And if anything, that's been a problem with Avid over the years as management has changed and things like that. As as we've discussed before, I mean, it is a gigantic ship to turn. I mean, it's not a huge company by, you know, Dell and HP and certainly not Apple standards. Obviously, it's, it's, it's tiny compared to that. But, but for what they're doing and you know they're they're obviously doing media composer but it's not the cash cow that it was once mm-hmm. was you know it's it's not what they're giving it away for free at a certain level now yeah. so the cash cow is now in the storage and media management and things that the, the file-based world has brought so mm-hmm. anything they do on the on the media composer front has to absolutely be reflected and supported in storage, in the uh, asset management stuff uh, with, with Interplay, has to be supported with Pro Tools, because all of this stuff for the people that are in, heavily invested in it, they've got everything. You can't mm-hmm. advance one thing and not advance all of it. And you, you can the proof in the pudding there is just look at how long it's taken them to do um, resolution independence and supporting things like 4K and above. Mm-hmm. 
you can't do it just in a vacuum. You have to do it with your storage and everything, your your entire infrastructure. So, you know, it's an incredibly slow ship to turn, um, again, because of the fact that they do everything and and people rely on them to get it right, you know, and, and they've had lots of stumbles, as we know, where they haven't done that and they can't afford to do too much of that these days. So they, they really, you know, take their time to get things right as much as they can. So what's the communication like between the various departments for the software to make sure everything works uh, in unison? Right. Well, when I was there, um, we had special initiatives between groups. So you're right that um, in the in the Boston area, that's where primarily all of the video side of things is mm-hmm. and storage and infrastructure. And then out on the uh, the West Coast, you've got the audio side and, and some consoles and things like that. So yes, there 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 are siloed to a degree, and they each have their list of things that they need to do for their um, industries. But as we said earlier, you know the 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 interoperability between those is well respected. So what they do is that they'd have somebody who's in charge of interop. I'd have I was in charge of interop on the east coast, and I had a colleague uh, that was in charge of it on the west coast. And we would we had an engineering scrum team that did nothing but work on interoperability between the two. Um, pieces of software. And the holy grail, I should say, that they've yet to do, because it's a holy grail thing and it's really hard, is to be able to do seamless conform. So, you know, you imagine how wonderful it would be if the video editor cuts out a scene and and you've already started working on the audio, and then the audio uh, can automatically be conformed, or at least said, here, here's what the you know, video editor just cut out. What do you want to do yeah. with all of these tracks? You know, we struggled with that and struggled with that for months and months. And it, it's a big problem because you want the computer to be able to do the analysis um, mm-hmm. and do it fast. Because as we know, you know, <laughs> people change their mind right up to the last minute on stuff. And it and it's always the audio people that really get killed because yeah. they're at the end trying to um, to clean things up. And, and, you know, we want to give them time to, to be creative and do their thing. But if they're just chasing their tails with regards to edits, then yeah. they don't get a chance to do that. Well, that's got to be so frustrating from like a, an engineering standpoint where you have to make sure it works between all the different tools, all the different, you know, pipelines that might exist. Yeah, Avid knows that people aren't all on the same version, and mm. I, I have to give them credit. Harder than any other company I know of, do they you know, work on backwards and somewhat forwards compatibility? And depending on who's defining what that means and what direction that means, mm. customers absolutely rely on them not doing anything to ba- to break backwards compatibility so if there's especially broadcasters broadcasters are the worst they take forever to upgrade their software because you know it's so invasive Mm -hmm. for them especially if they have multiple seats and stuff and they're on the air 24 7 i mean how on earth are they supposed to upgrade and not have the whole thing come crashing down or you know really get in the way of of their otherwise good time with their schedule (laughs) and so you know they'll we had people on version five still you know Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and so as we're marching forward we there's only so much we can do i mean when we bring out new features you know, we and we're we have somebody feeding us stuff from version five. Well, that's easy. You can always bring old stuff into the new, 
but try going back the other way. You know, if you've got a new uh, bunch of, say, keyframes or new kinds of uh, audio keyframes or new effects stuff in your um, your Avid, and then you send it to an older symphony someplace else or mm-hmm. whatever for finishing, that stuff, obviously, it doesn't have a clue. Now, there's two things it can do. It can say, I don't have a clue and ignore it, or it can crash. <laughs> uh, and sometimes you don't know which it's going to do until you try it. But they, I have to say, to their credit, they've worked really hard to make sure that they can do the smartest thing possible when you get these mixed versions across within you know, mm-hmm. Media Composer and Symphony and also going back and forth to Pro Tools. And you can imagine what a minefield it is. I hated that part of the job. To, to, to try to manage the spreadsheet of different you know, compatibility <laughs> matrices. Yeah. yeah, it's just nuts. And you want to just say to everybody, why don't you all freaking get on the same software? <laughs> it's not that expensive. But then when yeah. you look at it from the customer standpoint, really, you, you under, start to understand why some of them just can't either for expense or, like I said, the disruption it causes, especially in you know, multi-seat broadcast installation. So, so what a nightmare. That's, again, that's one of the product designer nightmares of trying to do forward and backward compatibility. But I, I don't think anybody does it better than them, and I guess that's one of the things that you know, people rely on them uh, to do. And you look at Final Cut, mm-hmm. you know, Final Cut 10 said, screw it. Yeah. I'm not taking in your FCP7 products or projects. And we know what kind of backlash that caused. So um, that alone, you could argue, was one of the biggest things that just set the market against them. So when did you leave the company and where did you go from there? Um, I left last July. And um, and before I left, I I went into the marketing department, which I think a lot of people thought was weird because – that seemed like a, a weird tangent for me to do, but it was because I enjoy the communications aspect so much, and I enjoy, um, you know, educating. Uh, I just like telling the good story, doing demos. I've always liked doing demos and mm-hmm. stuff and turning people on to new technology. So so I went into marketing, and then after I wore that for about a year, I joined this company called Hi-Rose, which I'm uh, working at now, and uh, we're a marketing communications company. So we... we pretty much work exclusively with companies in the media entertainment industry and we do content led marketing which which means we just do a lot of writing and generation of content talking mm-hmm. about you know what clients do and I keep asking people all the time it's like you know when you're you're talking to somebody about what you do you just need to put yourself in their shoes and go why? Why should I care? So what? You just have to be ruthless and say so what? And then maybe you'll say the right right thing versus all the you know stuff that maybe is important to you but not important to anybody else i found that I mean, you probably found this too when you go around and you meet lots of different people in the industry you know if you've been working in the same company for a long time like i did with avid you become very myopic and then the whole world revolves around you mm-hmm. and you don't really have a good feeling of what the rest of the world may think about you or uh, what it's like out there and it's um it's really interesting to kind of put that so what lens on there. And um, we used to get lots of people um, giving us you know, feedback at Avid. We've got beta programs. We've got forums and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you can imagine there are, there are two different kinds of people that communicate to you when you work at a company like, say, Avid, for instance. There are the people that, you know, are saying, hey, you know, it would really be great if it could do this or whatever. I was doing this the other day and this happened, you know, nice and respectful and tell you they've got a problem or a solution that needs fixing. Mm-hmm. And then there are the other people that just just curse and yell and just berate you to the end of the earth. 
you know, and I think, and I'm guilty of this too, because, you know, we all have to deal with software companies and such that kind of drop the ball on us or whatever. And, and, and because we're behind the, the veil of the, the, the internet, the interwebs, mm-hmm. um, we feel we can, you know, say things that we might not otherwise say to people's faces. And, but at the end of the day, who do you think got their feature through first? You know, there are people that absolutely, you know, rip you a new one. And then there are other people that are just nice and respectful and say, hey, this is a real big problem. I really need to fix. You know, please help. And guess which one got fixed first? I guess it's a lesson to all of us. But it's interesting because, you know, sitting at Avid back then, I couldn't talk about those people. But now that I'm outside, you know, I can say, guess what? If you want something fixed, don't you yell at them like that because they're going to just, you know, just an interesting interesting thing as I think back on my time over there. Now, I have one last question that I like to ask everyone I interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's for the film buffs out there. So, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh, man. I'm afraid it's really difficult to say to, to just nail one. Well, I can only do the band, and it would be Steely Dan. <laughs> you know, Steely Dan is co- crosses so much yeah. different types of music for me because of what they were. Well, thank you very much for letting me interview and and taking the time. Well, it was a real pleasure talking with you, Gordon. So that was my interview with Doug. Now, if you're wanting to take part in these live discussions that I was talking about, or if you want to join the discussion uh, about post-production on AOTG.com, go to AOTG.com slash discuss. And, of course, you can always start your own discussion there. Ask your own questions, whether they're tech questions or just throwing out a very specific or very generic question about post. So... With that said, make sure to check out our mobile apps. You can get them in the app stores for Google as well as Apple. You can always check us out on AOTG.com, on Twitter, at AOTG Network, on Facebook, Facebook.com slash AOTG Network. And of course, we now have a YouTube channel. You can get us at YouTube.com slash AOTG.com. And dot is spelled out. I'd like to thank Doug Hansel for allowing me to interview him. I'd like to thank John Pacifer for cutting this episode. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>